You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. That music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. And it is the middle of September. Don, we were really, really, really hot, but <laughs> we're not anymore. No, we're, we're going in the opposite direction now. Last week's show, Lois and I had pre-recorded some segments and putting them together as we sometimes do. And then I looked at the fact that on that day, Wednesday, it was going to be also 110 plus as it had been the previous day and felt that was probably the most important thing to talk about. So if you didn't happen to catch last week's show, I just went ahead and spliced in about 20 minutes where I talked about the heat wave and they, which was we were in the 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 throes of it, as they say. Uh, well, we're past that now. We went through six days over 100. We hit 115 degrees new record. And then we met that record the next day. We were 106, 109, 111. We just had five to six days where it was close to 110 or above 110 in the Sacramento Valley. The humidities were very, very low. These have had significant impacts on gardens and landscapes that I'll talk about in a moment. But let's look at the complete reversal of the weather that we're going into this week. We're recording this program on September 14th. It'll broadcast on Thursday, September 15th, 2022. Today's high, Wednesday, is going to be 78 degrees. And Lois is wearing a jacket as we record this. We actually in my house. This is an important data point. We actually, in a six-day period, didn't even get below 80 degrees except for about an hour or two. The nights were in the 80s. The days were in the hundreds. And plants do have diurnal rhythms that they're accustomed to. Uh, well, they didn't get those for about a week. So that should have, could have, may have some impact on plant performance over the next few weeks. It's going to be increasing clouds tonight and dropping down to, get this, 55 degrees. Now listen to these high temperatures for the week and low temperatures for the coming week. 78 Thursday, 81 Friday, 80 on Saturday, 70 on Sunday with a chance of showers, 75 on Monday with a slight chance of showers and warming up to 81 on Tuesday. The night temperatures are the biggest difference here. We're going to be 54, 54, 55, 52 on Sunday night and 54 on Monday night. So very much a fall feeling here in the Sacramento Valley after an extremely blistering heat wave last week. I should mention that there is some talk about a possible heat wave again at the end of the month, nothing like what we just went through, but above average. Right now, however, we're substantially below average. So we've got clear to partly cloudy skies over the whole region this morning. Onshore flow from the coast is continuing, pretty strong south breeze, mostly most parts of at least the western part of the Sacramento Valley. Uh, the ensemble model forecast shows this cooler pattern with a weak trough going through the remainder of the week. Temperatures around 5 to 15 degrees below average. Locally breezy southwesterly winds. The smoke, which is well off to the east, uh, coming from the Mosquito Fire, has been the name that's been given to the fire in Placer and El Dorado counties, will be mostly transported off to the north and the east and will stop filling the valley. There's been some very high air quality 
very high poor air quality readings in Placer County, El Dorado County, and the nearby areas where it was backing down into the valley. The extended discussion is an unseasonably deep upper low invading the West Coast Sunday. Invading, I like that. The West Coast Sunday, with models continuing to generate areas associated precipitation over interior Northern California. The system will usher in significantly cooler air with highs on Sunday as much as 20 or more degrees below average for this time of year. This is the first time I think this season we'll be saying this sentence. Some light snow accumulations are possible above 7,500 feet. What is the, you keep talking about above the average, below the average. What is the average here? It's it's the middle of September. What is uh, our we would normal? Be upper 80s in the early, early to mid-September would be 88-ish, would be our high temperature average at this time of year. So we're going to be well below that. And we boy, were we well above that last week. And when we go this rapidly from one kind of weather to another, people do get kind of woggly out there. And I can only imagine what's going on with their plants. So a very cool week, a possibility of a heat wave at the end of the month. We'll talk about that next show if it becomes more crystal clear to the meteorologists. But for now, enjoy this breezy autumn-like weather. And let's talk a little bit about what just happened here. We just went through a heat wave that was unprecedented. That's the simplest way I can put it. So the questions I keep getting about what to do, what to do, what can we expect? What, why did this happen? I keep having to say, you understand, we just broke records, uh, mm -hmm. not just one day, but not two days. We broke records for absolute high temperature. The number of days that hot in a row, we broke records for that. That's all over the Sacramento Valley. And the impact on shrubs and trees in particular, woody plants, well, your, you know, your turf is just, just destroyed by it in some cases. But let's talk about the, I would call the more important plants in the landscape. It's been severe. I made a point of driving around as I like to do every now and then through residential neighborhoods and seeing how things were going and checking on some trees that were stressed the last time I did this in mid-August. Two of them appear to be completely dead after this heat wave. And these are trees, okay? These are trees that were declining, but were definitely look like they're dead at this point. A couple of very anomalous things. I was looking at a group of six Italian alders. Now that's an unusual species for the valley. It's actually a Mediterranean alder tree. Alders being, we have the white alder here in California. This is a Mediterranean species. Of the six, there are five that are on a cul-de-sac. And they look okay, a little stressed, a little burnt on the leaves that are facing to the west. We're seeing a lot of that, a little marginal burn on the leaves. One of them, literally overnight, dropped at least 25% of its leaves. The gentleman who lives in that part of the retirement community was quite startled to go out and see his driveway completely covered with leaves. And they were continuing to fall as I drove slowly through there and got out to look at it. He's losing probably 50% of the foliage on that tree, and it won't surprise me if that Italian alder tree dies. It was the most exposed to the West. It was an area where we've known in this particular project or, or community that there's an irrigation problem, irrigation system problem. It had been somewhat drought stressed before it's defoliating in early to mid-September. Question would come up, he didn't ask it, but I'm sure the next person with this situation will ask it. Well, what's gonna happen? And the answer is, this is unprecedented. We don't know. It might just go dormant early, and just be bare now where it normally would do that in November and then might leaf out fine in the spring. But I'm guessing it won't because what all those deciduous trees are doing right now is storing energy for next year based on the photosynthesis of the leaves that it should be present and healthy. We don't normally get leaf drop here until well into late October, November, especially on that species. Usually it's in the month of November. So he's losing a month or more of 
sugar and starch and energy production that would be stored in the roots and, and the growing points of that tree, getting it ready to go into dormancy and leaf out next year. My answer would be, you won't know the impact of this heat wave on that tree and probably until next March or April. And then you'll have to make a decision about what has happened to it. So that's just one example of a number that I've been dealing with at the retail end. People walking in with shrubs, plants that just abruptly died. Well, that's an easy one. That's almost surely Phytophthora. Uh, people were trickle irrigating during extremely high temperatures with very <laughs> stressed trees. That's definitely not a good plan as it happens when you're dealing with something like that. So we'll talk more about this, obviously, as we go on and see more symptoms. But uh, those are just a couple of examples we've already been dealing with. And I know, well, I heard rumors of uh, someone who took all their house plants to be transplanted and drove them in the car to your shop in 110 degree weather. Mm. And I just, I just want to remind people that house plants there, they don't have, don't do that. Just don't do that. <laughs> now, now is a fine time to do that because the temperature outside is just about the same as the temperature inside. So you can transplant your, take your house plants in to be transplanted. That'd be fine. As a retailer, we're very concerned when people are buying plants in the summertime, putting them in their car and then going away. We often want to make sure that they're going to go right home. Um, in 80 degree weather, your car heats up very rapidly. I mean, you know about this if you have pets and kids that the car can become lethal. Uh, when it's 105 degrees, putting your houseplants in your car and driving to the nursery, we, she came right to us and we dealt with it and she came back and picked them up. And I said, you're going right home, right? And she nodded, yes. And I said, please understand the risk. If you stop at the grocery store for 20 minutes and that car is in full sun, you'll do significant harm to those plants. You know what the temperature of a car can get to when it's sitting in the sun on a day that's in the- It's 120. It's yeah, my, if the day that's in the hundreds, that is probably 140 or more in that car. Mm -hmm. And that definitely is not, not safe or healthy. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll mention this. Most retailers are willing to do repotting and things like that. And a slow day is a great day to do it. Call ahead first. Probably not a bad idea. We would have probably warned her at least, you know, bring them in, come right here. We'll deal with it. We'll hold them until later if you have to, if we have to, to, you know, until it's safe, like late at the end, towards the end of the day. But uh, yeah, it that was, was, it was hot enough that I, I actually worried about people yeah. going out there in that 115 degree weather. And, and I mean, you can't, you just, your body can't do the same things that you do when it's 80. It's called a heat emergency for a reason. And it did, you know, as a retailer with a garden center, we had to go in there. We had to water. We had to be there to water things and to make sure everything was okay. And people kept coming in. I keep looking at people pulling into the parking lot. You know, obviously, it was very slow by comparison with what it would normally be at this time of year. But they're walking in to ask a bunch of questions about shrubs and trees. And I'm thinking, it's probably safer for you to be at home right now. But let's go stand in the shade at the very least so we can talk about these shrubs and trees you're interested in. On the plus side, they did have our undivided attention because it wasn't very busy. I do want to make, make, make one comment here. I hate to do this to my fellow retailers, but uh, you know, I threw out almost all of my bedding plants after this heat wave, all the six packs and the smaller pots, because they were so badly stressed and injured by the heat, I didn't feel comfortable selling them. Mm -hmm. A lot of places don't do that. And there's a reason they don't, which is that those plants are actually there on guaranteed sale. They're, they're on a basis that the wholesaler comes in, evaluates the plants, takes back the ones that are not saleable, replaces them. That's how it works at most of the chain stores that you go to or the bigger box retailers. Wait till they've done that before you buy any bedding plants. It's not the fault of the retailer in that situation. I'm talking Walmart, Home Depot, places like that. The grower brings them in. The grower comes and takes away the ones that are not saleable. We 
could clearly tell that these six packs and these little pots were stressed. I mean, no matter how well we watered them, the plants were showing stress. Older leaves were discoloring. They were burnt on the surface. Uh, obviously, the roots were injured. And my feeling was I don't want someone taking home a six pack of broccoli that's been injured by the heat and then putting it out in their garden. I don't think it's going to perform well. You should buy healthy young plants, healthy <laughs> new crop of plants. But a lot of those places, it's not the authority of the retail manager of the store or the clerk that you're talking to at the cash register to make that decision. That decision right. is made by the grower. So once they've had a week or two to change everything out, and probably by the time you listen to the show, most of them, we've been restocking this week like crazy, and I'm sure all the other places have as well. We normally get, I know some people are interested in this kind of data, we normally get six to eight truck deliveries of different things every week. Every week. That's our typical pattern. Anywhere from big double semis to sing small panel trucks that bring us stuff every week. Last week, all of them canceled mutually. We spoke to them. It was, yes, hold off, please. We don't really want to process this right now, except one that we absolutely needed. The guy arrived with a great big truck. I mean, the semi. Our order was the only thing in it. I said, oh, this is your last stop. He said, you're our only stop. The owner decided to go wow. ahead and send you your order because you needed it. And I'm it. A round trip from Oroville to Davis just to deliver our one order. And I have to say that's great customer service on his part. And our, we were able to supply that customer a couple of days later when they needed their plants. So we got one delivery and we were the only delivery and all the others got postponed or canceled because of mm -hmm. the heat. It's not safe even in a you know big truck to be putting those things in there, taking them out. It's not good for the drivers and so on. But the main point I want to make is that uh, as you're looking at these little seedlings, plants look for healthy new stock rather than buying stuff that looks tired and like it went through that heat wave sorry retailers you know what you're doing you know the small independents are probably pitching that stuff and grumbling and here's the other part people climbing into the dumpster to pull them out going oh these these are fine they look okay i said well you know help yourself if you want but uh, i don't consider them reasonable for transplant so that's why i wasn't selling them don tomorrow the september 15th when the show airs what are people going to be able to listen to on Catered? KDRT has all kinds of amazing programming. And I want to mention that uh, one of the long time shows is back on the air. And that is The Golden Road. Is that running tomorrow? I think it runs tomorrow. Maybe, I'm, maybe I've got the Yes, tomorrow, Wednesday, live, 7 to 9 p.m. So actually, That's today, tomorrow. Wednesday. So today, all right. So uh, <laughs> next, a week from tomorrow, a week from today. The Golden Road. Anyway, every Golden Wednesday Road. from now on. It's one of the long-running shows on KDRT. It is a musical journey down the golden road, exploring the music of the Grateful Dead, the roots and many offshoots. Past DJs for this show have included Alligator, Rod, and Lee, and Wayne Hagen is stepping up. Wayne is our jug band guy. He does two shows already, and he's stepping up to keep the golden road going so you can continue to enjoy the many, many, many live performances of the Grateful Dead. That's Wednesdays. Yes, we'll get it right. Wednesday, 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, for the rebroadcast time for all the music shows, all the public affairs shows at KDRT, just go to kdrt.org, click on the schedule guide, then go over to the support button and send us some money. That's a good plan. <laughs> what can we do in the next week or so? You got any events coming up there that you want to tell us about? Um, let's see. Or maybe someplace we could visit. Do we got any any good places? The Arboretum is always a good place. Well, that's open 24 hours a day. I mean, that's yeah. uh, you can go over there anytime. Actually, I was going to mention the Bohart Museum because they <laughs> just had some awards over there that I think are really cool. 
And I'll just give this a moment to pull up. Here we go. Now, so Bohart has some outreach events going on um, on September 25th. They're going to be doing a program all Sunday afternoon, 1 to 4 p.m. Learn about the smallest fairy wasps to the murder hornets or in the category in the general topic of weird and wonderful wasps. What role do wasps play in plant galls and figs? What is a parasitoid? Hint, it's different than a parasite. Wasps are way more exciting than you may think. That's on September 25th, Sunday from 1 to 4 p.m. Saturday, October 15th, Insects, Art, and Culture, also 1 to 4 p.m. Come and learn about insects through the lenses of art and culture. This is part of Spirit Week for Aggie students, parents, and alumni, but all are welcome. And they've got others. So you just head over to bohart.ucdavis.edu and look at the Fall 2022 Outreach Event Schedule. All kinds of great stuff coming up there through November. Dragonflies rule on november 6th check that one out <laughs> well we have a number of questions here's one from gordon and it yeah. says hello i have a rather annoying problem with what appears to be green bottle flies on a squash plant the plant is infested with white flies on the bottom of the leaves but the most annoying part are the bottle flies that are infesting the squash plant none of the usual food sources for flies are present they just seem to sit on top of the leaves in great numbers and fly up when disturbed is it possible they are feeding on the white flies if they are they're not doing a, a very good job <laughs> <laughs> and then he also has a question about fertilizers, but let's take the flies first. Yeah, I'm, I suspect those flies are feeding on the excretion of the white flies. It would be great if they were, in fact, feeding on the white flies. Now, people need to understand you have uh, five stages of white fly present, even though you typically only see the adult. So the adult is the white fluttery thing that you brush the plant and clouds of these guys come out and flutter around you and annoy you. If you then turn the leaf over, you see what look like tiny aphids. Uh, now, there's several different kinds of white fly, but most commonly the one we're dealing with is the greenhouse white fly. That's the name of it. And uh, they look like tiny aphids and they're like, as with aphids, they're all clustered on the underside of the leaf and they tend to be the color of what they're on. So suddenly you realize how many of them there are. And there's also eggs present, three instars, eggs and adults. And uh, the instars, the babies are excreting just as aphids do honeydew, essentially sugar solution. I mean, you could touch your thumb to it, touch your thumb to your tongue, gross yourself out, but it'll be very sweet because it's essentially just, just sugar. And uh, that attracts all kinds of things. Aside from ants being attracted to it, I have seen flies of different types being attracted to it as well. The blue bottle fly is, or green bottle fly, as far as I know, is completely harmless on your squash plant. So it's not doing any benefit. You're correct. I don't think it's feeding on the white flies. I don't think it's actually capable of it, but it's probably enjoying the excretion of their babies. So controlling the white flies by our usual method, which I probably don't need to go through again. Spraying it with water. There you go. <laughs> that will knock off. That'll, that'll drown some adults, knock off some of the eggs, knock off a couple of the instars. My recollection is that one stage is really stuck on there. And so the reason we always tell you spray every day for three to five days, really thoroughly, at least once a day, is because you missed some. And you're, you're not trying to eradicate the population. You're trying to knock it down uh, to a level where the beneficial insects, which are present, though unfortunately probably doesn't include your green bottle flies, all the same things that feed on aphids will feed on the larva of white flies. All this uh, flying things 
that feed on flying insects will feed on the flying ones. So the dragonflies in your yard will feed on the, the adults as well. I'm sure swallows and you know certain birds would probably feed on them. Hummingbirds, I suspect, feed on them as well. But it's the larva that you really want to get after, even though you're seeing the adults. I had a customer who was very upset about the whiteflies increasing on her roses, and she'd really never had that problem before. I've occasionally had whiteflies build up on roses, and she said, well, I've been you know rinsing them each day when I can get to it said, well, that's the problem. You do have to be consistent. And in our nursery, if they're building up, I mean, first of all, first principle of integrated pest management, identify the pest. Second principle, monitor. Daily checking, same time of day is helpful. So you have some kind of baseline, but just sort of a general, are they getting worse or do, or do they seem to be diminishing? If they're getting worse, we wash off twice a day, early in the day when we get there and right before we leave. And we have found if we do that for three days, the population drops very rapidly. Whereas if we do it just in the morning when we come in, it drops less rapidly. So if you're getting a problem, it seems like it's getting worse. And a lot of people are getting that problem in their vegetable gardens right now with the weather changing and the plants all overgrown and so on. Doing it twice a day, if you're in an arid climate, will be very effective. If you're in a place where you've got humidity well into the afternoon and into the early evening, unfortunately, that late day spraying of with water may increase disease problems. So you'll have to use your judgment if you're listening someplace where it's not as dry as it is here. But I do think that all you're seeing there is the flies coming in because of the sticky goop coming out of the babies and on the undersides of the leaves. Are there different kinds of white flies in different regions? Because I, I know that Gordon is in Montreal, so that's yeah. a quite a different climate from ours. Are there lots of different kinds of white flies or is white flies, all of them pretty much the same? Most people are dealing with the greenhouse white fly. The silver vein white, silver leaf white fly is down in Imperial Valley in California as an agricultural pest. There are some other specific ones, but mostly we're dealing with white flies at hate to say this, probably came in on a plant from a nursery. So <laughs> greenhouse okay. fireflies, pretty much all the same one. Very, very rapid rate of increase. Um, now a question, one of my staff asked me, it's 110 degrees. Is that having any effect on the reproductive rate of all these pests like aphids and whiteflies? Absolutely. It's, it's suppressing it. Almost every hemipterous pest, hemiptera. Hemipterous? Yeah, that's the order of aphids, white flies, scale, mealybugs, those guys, those kinds of things. They're all closely related. Almost every one of those that I'm aware of has its own optimal reproductive temperature range. You know, humans probably do too, if you get right down to it. But above a certain temperature and below a certain temperature, their population increase dramatically drops. And almost all of them, you start getting up into the 90s, the reproductive rate slows down. Some of them will simply stop reproducing at high temperatures. So that's one plus side. On the downside, almost all the beneficial insects that feed on them have their own optimal temperature range for reproduction. And uh, that varies from one to another. But uh, fortunately for us, it tends to run fairly parallel to these hemipterous pests, but uh, they may take a little while to catch up. So that's one of the reasons you see these spikes, you know, the, the beneficials are out there all the time. The aphids are out there all the time. The white flies are out there all the time. Why don't we have spring aphids all through the summer? Because their upper temperature range for reproduction is the mid eighties. So here in the Valley, we get, you know, our average temperature from June through early October is too high for them to be repro reproducing at a reasonable rate for their population. It's easy for the beneficials to control them at that point. This is one of the reasons I wanted, I always mention this truism that most of our pest problems and many of our disease problems have about a six week lifespan. And in the case of the hemipterous pests, it has to do with the temperature range for their fecundity. How's that? 
use, use that sentence at the next party you go to. You know about hemipterous pests and their fecundity problem with high temperatures? <laughs> <laughs> you may find yourself in a corner talking to yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, next question from Gordon. So we have another question here. It says, I also have a question about fertilizer formulas. NPK numbers come in all kinds of ratios, but how do you choose what to use? You can buy an orchid mix of 15.55 or one listed for evergreens at 28 to 10, 10, almost the same ratio. Triple 20 used to be the go-to for most things, but now depending on the factor, there are many formulas and ratios that seem to be interchangeable. So just triple 18 or the most recent one here, 12, four, eight ratio. Yeah. Is it just a matter of dosage, micronutrients or preference? It used to be N for growth and PK for roots and fruits and flowers. What is it now? Yeah, those are good questions. And a lot of it is marketing. I have to say that. And I'm happy to see that the so-called balanced fertilizers, that's what we used to call ones that had the same numbers, 10, 10, 10, 16, 16, 16. They would call them balanced fertilizers as if that were a good thing because balance, who doesn't want balance in their life, right? It had no relationship to how plants use nutrients. It had no relationship to what deficiencies you might have in your soil. And so they were, it was really just marketing. First of all, yes, it's the final part in, in thing, anything you're mixing into a solution, like putting X tablespoons in the gallon and adding, a, you know, adding the water It's the parts per million in that gallon of, of mixed up fertilizer, you'll find your 15.55 and your 28.10.10 Generally, it's probably about the same parts per million when you get down to the the mixed up solution. The marketing for all these different categories of plants is one of my pet peeves because none of it bears any relationship to reality of evidence or studies or anything like that. The one thing they do for plants that are known to be acid preferring or citrus and avocados in California, those are plants that tend under a variety of different circumstances to show micronutrient deficiencies. Micronutrients, iron, uh, manganese, magnesium, zinc, things like that. Things that are needed in very small quantities, hence the term micronutrients. We know that their need for those is often a relationship to the soil pH. So they'll add sulfur, which is an element that plants use, but which also helps to temporarily reduce the pH around the soil zone of the plant and make those micronutrients available. You can go online and find all these charts that show uh, the range at which iron is easily taken up by plants, the rate, the range of pH at which manganese is reasonably taken up by plants and lots of pictures of micronutrient deficiencies. Most of this goes back into the early 20th century with research that was done. Many of those pH ranges that I see in published uh, um, uh, books and guides, I, as far as I can tell, have just been carried forward from one extension publication to another since perhaps the 1940s. Most of them don't have any actual evidentiary basis other than if your pH is really high, some things will be deficient. If your pH is really low, some things will be deficient. What it boils down to is the one thing you're always going to need is nitrogen. Nitrogen almost always increases yield, always increases growth, and is almost always deficient in soils and they can't really test for that. So just assume it is. And then phosphorus, people way over apply it. They, it can actually cause many of the deficiencies that we were attributing to pH for decades. Many of the people in Davis and Woodland where we have high pH water have always assumed it was a pH problem. Uh, they, we have alkaline water, it has salts in it and so on. And so they're trying to correct that in point of fact, they're probably applying too much phosphorus because every soil test I've looked at 
in Davis when someone has had it done by a professional soils lab shows the phosphorus content either high, very high, or all the way to the top of the chart because phosphorus doesn't go anywhere very readily. When you put it on the soil, it stays there. And it, it's actually even very hard to get it into the root zone. But for many, many years, nurseries, including my own, would back when we first opened, we'd sell bloom food. 0, 10, 10, all these things with the idea being that phosphorus was for fruit and flower production. It does not stimulate flower production, it does not stimulate fruit production. If you're a cannabis grower, please disregard all of the marketing that tells you you need 50% phosphorus in your solution in order to get the biggest buds, blah, 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 because now you're the ones that are polluting the gardens with phosphorus. And we're finally getting people to understand they don't need 16, 16, 16, 16, 0, 0 would probably be fine in most cases. A soil test is useful because it will show you that you don't need phosphorus. It'll probably show you <laughs> in our area that you don't need potassium. So the master gardeners are all trained heavily to encourage people to get soil tests. And I have some reservations about spending a lot of money on that because I've looked at many of them in Davis area and they all look pretty much the same. They don't test for nitrogen. They tell you to use nitrogen. They tell you that your phosphorus is high and that your potassium is either fine or, or high. So you don't need those things. Applying excess potassium is not harmful, particularly. I'd have to get out my old textbooks to see what a potassium toxicity looks like. But applying excess phosphorus, which is the one we've been harping on here on the show for since 2005, roughly, it blocks the uptake. It affects the uptake of micronutrients. So if you've managed to incorporate it into the root zone, which is what you have to do to get it down where the roots would take it up, that bone meal that you put down there, that, that super phosphate, that all that stuff, it inhibits the roots ability to take up, to develop mycorrhiza. It suppresses the growth of mycorrhiza. We now know how important those are to the plant's uptake of water and nutrients. One of the things that happens if you suppress the uptake of mycorrhiza, or the, excuse me, the growth of mycorrhiza, you're suppressing the uptake of micronutrients. So you're leading to micronutrient deficiencies, deficiencies by applying excess phosphorus. In fact, you can even apply sufficient phosphorus to make it difficult for the roots to take up phosphorus. So <laughs> there's the irony of it all. The best fertilizer to buy is the one that has the highest nitrogen content. That's what it comes down to. If there's some phosphorus, yeah, it's, you can't avoid it. I mean, they're, they're, the only way you can avoid any phosphorus in there, and I don't think you have to avoid it, you really, you know, rigorously, but don't be applying it intentionally. But this number he gave here, 1248, that's good. Okay, that's fine. It's only, you know, 4% phosphorus. It's hard to get a, a, a fertilizer that doesn't have some phosphorus. Your organic compost has phosphorus in it. If you keep it as low as reasonable, you aren't going to see these deficiencies. It's the people who go out and feed their roses with a high bloom fertilizer every six weeks, like the rose fertilizer manufacturers want you to do. They start getting chronic iron deficiency on their roses. So they go back down to the nursery and they buy iron products and they apply those and then they're putting more bloom food on there and then they need more iron product. It's great for retailers, but really not good for the soil and not best for your plants. So what happens to the phosphorus? I mean, plants don't need it. It's too well, much of it, it in the no. soil. I mean, but they don't need that much. Right. So is it just going to sit there forever or it is, is it going to wash out or what's going to happen to it? Both of those things. And one of them is unfortunate. If it's incorporated, okay, it stays there. It is adsorbed. That's today's vocabulary word, A-D-S-O-R-B, adsorbed, held on to, ionically attracted to and held by 
soil colloids, which are clay or pieces of the organic material, and it stays on there. It stays very tightly. Phosphorus is an anion, and it's easily attracted to cations, and it just sticks on there. So it's very hard to get it out of there. If you have an excess of phosphorus, I've read various articles. The Garden Professor's blog, Dr. Linda Chalker Scott, goes into this in great detail. The, the myth of phosphorus is one of her big topics because it comes up all the time. So I suggest you go to her Facebook page, The Garden Professor's, or her great book, The Informed Gardener, Linda Dr. Dr. Linda Chalker Scott up at Washington State, how to deal with too much phosphorus. Well, you just have to grow it out of there. You have to grow plants. It is a macronutrient. Plants do use phosphorus. There's no question about it. But you have to grow a plant that takes it into the foliage and then take that foliage away and keep doing that to take to reduce the level of phosphorus. The key thing, though, would be I don't want people to freak out about this. I just don't want you applying it unless you've had a soil test done that shows it's necessary. And as you're choosing a fertilizer, 12-4-8 would be better than you know, uh, 16, 16, 16. Uh, it, it just, you, you want to look for one that has a reasonably low amount of phosphorus. Yes, plants do use it. It's a macronutrient, but you don't need to be applying it unless your soil test shows you absolutely need it. And even in that case, um, I would, I've seen those tests. We've discussed them in various places like the garden professor's blog on Facebook. And her comment is that generally the recommendations they make for phosphorus are agricultural based rather than home garden based. You don't need it for yield. You don't need it. Even if it shows it at a low level, assuming you're listening somewhere else in the country, uh, you probably don't even need to apply it in many of those situations unless it's at a very low level. So it's hard to get it out of there. And your second question, does it go away? Yes, unfortunately, if you throw it on the surface, this broadcast fertilizer, it has phosphorus, phosphates in it. It is adsorbed onto the surface particles of soil. That's not a huge problem unless we get enough rain that those particles of soil wash off and into the storm drain system. And now you're polluting the storm drain system and wherever that drains out to with phosphates. So phosphate fertilizers are actually banned in areas or increasingly banned in areas where there are water pollution problems resulting from home garden use of high phosphorus fertilizers. And one of the common sources of that, unfortunately, lawn fertilizers. Your lawn doesn't need any phosphate. So if you're buying a lawn food, the lowest phosphorus level you can find at your local hardware store, your local garden center is the best way to go. If you're fertilizing your lawn, follow the label very carefully. And some of you folks back around Chesapeake Bay, New York State, they're banning the use of these products because of the runoff from the surface carrying the fertilizer pollutant into the storm drain system. Not a big issue for us because one, it doesn't really go there, <laughs> but it, we have no reason to be doing that. And so we should just be cautious about intentionally using high phosphorus fertilizers. So phosphorus and phosphate are related. They're not exactly the same thing, but one turns into the other. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Very good. Phosphates contain phosphorus. All right. And then I mentioned potassium. Potassium is important in plants, but it's almost never necessary. So yes, it is useful to get a soil test done when you first move to an area. I do think that's great. And I always encourage it when people ask about it in our area, even though I can say, I can tell you what it's, I can tell you what it's going to say. I've never seen one that showed a deficiency of either of those two macronutrients, the phosphorus and the potassium. And remember, they can't test accurately for nitrogen. They may give you a reading for nitrogen, but they'll even explain to you. It changes form so rapidly and, and, and so uh, so unpredictably, depending on temperature and moisture, that the number they're giving you is not all that meaningful. So, so the next question comes from Mahir, and I don't know exactly where he... he's in Irvine, Irvine, in there we California. Go. Okay, yeah. well, it got it got hot down there after we got this. Interestingly, so the the uh, email is from third week of August. 
And now we're talking about it in September. It's about par for the course for us. Some multi-graft stone fruit, um, a uh, one of the interspecific hybrids, a, a uh, what is a nectar plum, and the avocado. And the avocados did look like they did get stressed. These pictures are great because they really show me something. The leaves were burnt and then there's new growth that looks good. So that's a good start. Hopefully um, here, I uh, went ahead and painted the trunk of the avocado before they went into the heat wave that they had down there because that would help protect the trunk from sunburn. Avocados are very vulnerable to sunburn. After I got this email, I also had a call from someone who had recently planted an avocado tree, wanted to know if they needed to shade the avocado tree. And I said, I don't know if you need to, because once again, this is an unprecedented heat wave, but there's nothing wrong with doing so if you do it safely. And what we suggested to them, and here this might be helpful to you in a future event, take some stakes, put them in the ground to the west, at least in our area, of the tree, because the hottest sun of the day when it's really a heat wave comes in 4, 5, 6 p.m. And just get some shade cloth, it would be the best, but you could use anything as long as it's not close to or touching the plant. You just want a shadow pattern over that young plant as we get into the hottest time of day. It wouldn't hurt if that shadow pattern is on the plant as early as one or two. What I don't want people to do, and this is a little bit off of what he's asking about, so we'll come back to the question in a moment. What I really don't want people to do is frame around a plant and cover it in a heat wave mm. because you have just made a solar cooker. <laughs> just like not- your heart, her car gets very hot. Your, yeah. Yeah, and if you what about the, doing and if you put something taking, if you put something over that completely excludes light, that's also not good for the plant. So 50% shade cloth off to the side where it will cast a shadow over the plant, or even a beach umbrella. You know, if you have one of those is handy uh, to help protect it from the hottest sun of the day during a heat wave can be very helpful. Well, if I don't have if I'm not really a carpenter kind of a person, if I have one of those 10 by 10 pop-up tents. Mm-hmm. And would would that be enough or would I also need to have something hanging down the one side? You just need something that casts a shadow on the plant. I saw all kinds of things being rigged up as we went into the heat because people were justifiably very concerned about sunburn on tomato fruit, sunburn on young fruit that were still on the trees, um, you know, burning on the leaves and the stems. That wasn't this wasn't his question, but uh, it does does get to the issue that. These are in containers in his picture. Yeah. And it was extremely hot. And I can tell you as someone who manages containers, we were watering twice a day during that extreme heat here in the Sacramento Valley, twice a day, early when we come in, again, mid-afternoon, because plants were drying out that quickly in containers. And so people would ask, you know, if they're buying something, is it better to plant this or, or keep it in the pot? Well, normal temperature conditions, I always say, easier to manage the soil moisture in the ground than in a container speaking from considerable experience of both but i wouldn't have you out there planting when it's 105 110 degrees so wait till that passes but in general get them in the ground as quickly as you can and the pictures that he sent here the stone fruits are obviously you know big and root bound in these containers uh, growing a stone fruit that is say peach plum nectarine multi-graft any of those in a container you would need something the size of a half barrel you know a half wine barrel in order to get it through a year or two with a sufficient root zone so these plants have been stressed by being root bound by the difficulty of keeping them watered i will also mention that both of these look like they are dave wilson nursery stock one of the companies we work with i recognize those tags anywhere if they're on the citation rootstock, citation is a semi-dwarfing rootstock. And my personal experience is it's not very drought tolerant. 
And so citation is one where you can look in mid-August at this long row of stone fruits that I have, peaches, plums, nectarines, so on. And it's not my preferred rootstock, but I have some that are on it. Mid-August, you can tell the ones on citation. With everything watered the same, they look a little more stressed. The fall, a late summer color coming on, it's on them first. So it may simply be that your rootstock, because it's probably on citation, that's their most popular rootstock by far, is just causing those trees to set into dormancy a little bit earlier. And the stress is adding to that. I'd get them in the ground as quickly as you can. I mean, I think that's really the, the very first aspect of, of this discussion is get those planted into either much bigger containers, 15 gallon, 24 inch, or even a half barrel as quickly as you can. They still have time to make root growth, even though they won't make any top growth in the case of deciduous fruit trees. They're done. They're, they've done their growth for the season for the most part. But uh, get them into something where the roots can get some more growth and where it'll be easier for you to manage the watering. Or of course, getting them in the ground in the long run is going to be a lot easier. Every fruit tree season, every bare root fruit tree season, we get people coming in who want to grow fruit trees in containers. And I've done it just to see how easy it is. And the answer is it's not very easy. You're trying to grow a plant with a large root system in a small pot. And they ask, well, what about the miniature ones? You know, the, what we used to call the genetic dwarf peaches that only grow a few inches a year. Their roots are even bigger, interestingly. I mean, their root systems are full size. They're, they're a dwarf plant with short internode distances on a perfectly normal rootstock. So the same answer applies. I did a miniature peach in a half barrel for 10 years. And uh, it didn't grow very well, but it grew okay. It grew six inches or so a year. It gave me fruit. It was fun. When we went after 10 years to plant it in the ground, that barrel had been facing to the west. There were no roots in the west side of the container because the heat load on that pot was such that they couldn't grow there. So if you do fruit trees in containers or any woody plant in containers, group them in such a way that the roots are shaded somehow Really in the long run, of course, better to get them in the ground, but I realize a lot of people have no place in the ground for them. Yeah, I was noticing on those pictures that those big black pots were just sitting there on the concrete and right. I'm going, ooh, you know, even, even if all you have is the cardboard box, put something around that pot yeah. just so that there's a, a, a bit of shade from the sun hitting it because black absorbs so well. Yeah, now you and I are in the valley, so we see this as an extreme thing here. Uh, down in Irvine, you know, growing up in coastal San Diego, I would never even really think about direct sun on a container because it wouldn't seem like such an issue. Irvine kind of depends on where you are because you've got some climate range over that particular community. They get heat waves just like we do, uh, and they're not, of course, as extreme as ours, but direct sun on a black container, even in Southern California, can do some root damage. So what I like to do as we get into the hot weather is just group things closer together and then have things, smaller plants in front of bigger plants so that they're shading each other out and keep close attention on the watering in that situation. Okay. Well, we have a letter from Nigel who asked for our advice on a silver maple. Yeah. Dear Don and Lois, thank you for your wonderful show. I often listen to it while I go running. And if it's worth anything, the days you release a new really, a new episode are the only time I manage to push an extra couple miles to have my run finish <laughs> at the same time as the podcast. All right. That's good to hear. Uh, that's a new one. Thank you, Nigel. <laughs> 
I had a question about trees in Davis. I was hoping you could provide some advice and guidance. I live in central Davis, about three blocks north of the Russell Field and College Park in soil that I think is described as clay loam, though it often feels like pure clay when I hold the dense gray material in my hand. I suspect my property contains a few 1970s mistakes of landscaping. In particular, at some point, privet trees were planted and they have since gone native on the land with many volunteers showing up at various locations. Additionally, a large shade tree on the property is a silver maple, which I had heard were originally popular as a fast-growing method to provide shade, though are disfavored now for being weak-limbed. The silver maple has certainly dropped large branches in the past during major storms, but a few weeks ago, it dropped a large five-inch branch, and he has pictures of the tree, yeah. uh, which also makes me wonder if I should remove it as a safety hazard. From my perspective, a tree that drops a large limb should be removed, but it also seems a tree that spends time and energy investing in large limbs just to drop them should already have been removed by the evolutionary <laughs> process. <laughs> Are yeah. silver maples fatally flawed, or can they thrive and not drop limbs if provided an adequate environment in Davis? I'm not sure how to decide what to do with this tree. I love its size, look, and shade, but find large falling branches unacceptable. Yes, I'm wondering say. if I removed some nearby competing trees with 10, with 10 feet oaks and privets and watered or provided nitrogen more regularly if the tree would stop dropping branches. Any idea on how best to resolve this? Yeah, great pictures. And uh, this is a real concern with a big tree. If it's showing a propensity to dropping branches, a tree service looking at it would be able to tell you if there are further cases where you have wide or narrow branch angles that are a particular concern. Actually, looking at your picture, I see right away another branch that concerns me. Um, a, a big tree is a hazard. The question is whether it's a risk. I know that's a sort of a simplistic way to put it. The risk is um, increased by how close it is to where there would be injury from the branches falling. I mean, a great big tree out in a field, if it drops a branch, the risk is fairly low. If there's a great big tree over your house, the risk is high. And silver maples, Acer saccharinum, were planted in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And we do know that they're not a good residential tree for a couple of reasons. One is that the roots go well past the canopy. And like all maples tend to be fairly shallow. So they can be a, a, a nuisance in the garden in that regard. Second, we now know, since we know that the roots go well past the canopy, that the water supply to that plant is coming from many different directions. You, your neighbors on both sides, any watering that the city might be doing in nearby public property and so forth. Almost all of you have done your part. Great, you've cut your water use by 30% or 50%. We know that's weakening big trees. We know that that is making what was a hazard more of a risk. And so, and you can't control a lot of the water that tree, a tree of that size and that age gets at this point. Yes, you can water where you think the roots are on your property, but if your neighbor has stopped watering their lawn and the person behind you has completely shut off the irrigation, I'm seeing situations like this regularly. I would be very concerned about this tree. I would consider this hazard has become an increased risk because drought is weakening the tree. One of the effects of drought is that trees aren't forming as much reaction wood. If it has a bad angle, a narrow angle, that branch is more likely to split probably than it was before. I wouldn't want to be the ones parsing the relative degree of risk from that word probably, I would say the risk is increasing. Obviously someone on site looking at the tree more closely can say proper pruning can make this tree safe or there's too many narrow angles, too many wide angles. 
that branch up there concerns me. Look at the fact that it's over your house. It should be pruned probably pretty quickly. So I believe, yes, you're correct. Acer saccharinum silver maple is not being used as a, as a city tree. It hasn't been in the city street tree program for quite a long time. It's a parent of some important hybrid maples that are being used, but they're not drought tolerant. So most of these hybrid maples are coming off of street tree lists. And I would have that tree evaluated. I would have an arborist tell you if there are branches that he or she considers dangerous that could be removed immediately and what it's his his or her long-term uh, evaluation of that tree safety is I hate i always hate to be the one that's saying take a tree out i you know obviously i'm i'm a tree davis i'm out there promoting planting of trees i want more trees but if a tree is going to be dangerous or has the potential properly professionally evaluated that it is a risk, it probably should be pruned every two to three years and or you should give some consideration to removal. It's not uncommon for people who get an estimate on the pruning to then get an estimate on the removal and be surprised that it's just about the same cost. Um, it would be worth looking into, especially since you mentioned there are some oaks that have come up nearby. Well, maybe just let one of those grow if it's in a good position. Privets, yeah. Privets were planted widely in Davis, one particular <laughs> nursery who I won't mention. Thought it was a great tree, planted them in the older parts of town and a lot of the landscapes that that particular nursery did. They planted both the Japanese privet and the waxleaf privet, both of which set copious fruit. And birds like the fruit and scatter them all over. So for home gardeners who are in the older neighborhoods where there's a big canopy of trees, they're dealing, the weeds they're dealing with mostly are seedling trees and plants like privets. And they're quite a challenge. I do believe that privets probably have some sort of allelopathic effect on the soil, or at least their roots are aggressive enough that they compete with things because not much grows under privets. And I think they're harmful to young trees that are nearby. So if you're trying to get a nice, healthy, well-chosen excellent long-term tree growing, let's say an oak or something like that, any privets in its vicinity should be eradicated. And that can be a matter of digging them out, usually not very easy to do, cutting and treating them with certain garden chemicals, or just repeatedly cutting them until they die out from lack of photosynthesis. But I do highly recommend that anybody that's dealing with seedling privets, take them out or else you'll pretty much end up with a backyard of nothing but seedling privets because they have that kind of impact. People often ask me what I'm looking at. Any branch angle less than 30 degrees, any branch angle more than 45 degrees, 30 to 45 is generally safe. This is a real generalization. Obviously, you want arborists to look at it. So a narrow branch angle, what can happen is you get occluded wood, lots of vocabulary words today, where wood <laughs> is just stuck in there and it's not part of something that's reinforcing the angle of the branch. It's actually inhibiting it. And so you get a strong wind, it'll split. And that comes down. Wide angles, more than 45 degrees. Not every tree is a problem with a wide angle. Some, like oaks, eventually develop 90 degree angles with perfectly yeah. healthy trees. But you can look at them and you can see the reaction wood that an oak has. Then go look at a eucalyptus tree. All right, look at where the branch is coming out of the trunk. In the case of the oak, you'll see a collar. You'll see a whole bunch of wood there that's helping to reinforce it and making it possible for the uh, Schumardi oak on my property that has a 35 foot branch that's at a complete 90 degree angle. And I'm not concerned about it at all. There's a substantial inch or more of reinforcing wood underneath that branch. I also have eucalyptus trees on my property that I planted in the 1980s. We don't sell eucalyptus trees anymore for a bunch of reasons, but I could go out and take a picture of one that has a trunk way down by the freeway, way down where it won't hurt anybody when this happens. And I say when, not if, which has a branch almost as big as the trunk coming straight out at nearly a 90 degree angle. Someday that branch is going to fall down. 
I guarantee it. It may do it very abruptly on a hot day. It might do it during a windstorm. If it were anywhere near anything that mattered to me, I would have, would have had it taken out years ago. But they don't have any reaction wood underneath there. They simply don't form it. And the species differ as to whether or not and how much they make reaction wood that makes their branch structures safe. So eucalyptus, we all know, you know, they're, they're famous. The old, old horrible term for them was widow makers. Those branches will drop very abruptly in hot weather for you know, a sudden limb drop. They're some of the most famous for that. But generally, if you look at the angle of the branch, I took a course in physics, not my strong point, but I had to because I was a science major and I took a course in physics. And I joked many times over the years with my professor who came in and became a very good customer that he had used eucalyptus limb drop as an example of the laws of physics. <laughs> at some point, <laughs> that branch will get out far enough. Gravity will take its toll. And he showed the whole equation for it. I don't have that anywhere in my notes anymore. But it was a really good example of uh, how that tree becomes dangerous. Why is an oak tree not dangerous? Because it has a way of supporting that wood and the eucalyptus does not. So someone needs to look at that branch angle that I see going a little wider and tell you whether that tree is still safe in their, in their professional view. Dana writes, hi, Don. I'm not sure if you subscribe to Kathy Garvey's Bug Squad blog from the UC Davis Entomology Department. Just in case you don't, here is an upsetting and interesting article about pesticides and monarch butterflies. Your thoughts? And then she has a link. The article was to a study in which researchers went out and purchased milkweed, Asclepias plants, at garden centers and places all over the country and they tested them and all of them, every single one tested positive for not just one pesticide, but a bunch of pesticides. Oh no. Yeah, that's not good. Um, first thing right up front here, let me tell you, we grow our own milkweed at my garden center. And this is actually one of the reasons that we do this. Although I have checked with the growers that I buy from, I have one small grower who I is local who grows them, we buy from her and she doesn't use any pesticides. The other growers that I buy from tell me they don't use pesticides and I tend to believe them, but I don't have any real way to verify that. And this can be a big problem. If you go and you buy a milkweed plant and you've got some of these caterpillars, either they won't feed on it for one reason or another, or they will be killed by these pesticide residues. And one of the most common pesticide residues that they'll encounter is Bacillus thuringiensis, which is- Well, that's, that's, that's the one that's specific to kill butterflies. Yeah, well, it's to I kill mean, caterpillars, please. Caterpillars. Yeah, and so um, uh, in response to the, the note I got, yes, I read this blog intermittently, it's great. It's, she's also, Kathy Keatley Garvey is one of the best uh, insect and plant photographers in the area. And you can find this blog, it is called the Bug Squad blog at UCANR. Dot edu just type in bug squad blog and you can you know sign up to have it show up in your on your computer on a regular basis um i read it frequently and she's really really good because she covers issues like this growers spray for two basic reasons one oleander aphid which is present anywhere you have milkweed oleander aphid is kind of cool. It's a golden orange color. It is specific to oleanders and milkweed. Interesting that an aphid feeds exclusively on these two very poisonous plants. Um, most retailers, most wholesalers think retailers don't want their plants arriving with aphids on them. 
I have said to them, I don't care. Don't spray with anything. We'll deal with that at our end. We'll just wash them off with water. We'll squish them. We'll do whatever we have to. But I'm not absolutely sure that they aren't spraying for those aphids in some cases. The other problem people need to be aware of is San Francisco Bay Area. Now, I realize they bought plants all over the place, so this isn't just the Bay Area. The San Francisco Bay Area has had a quarantine, state agricultural quarantine for the light brown apple moth, or LBAM, as we call it, in most of the counties of the Bay Area that I'm aware of. When you have a quarantine on a particular pest, and this is a caterpillar pest, the local ag commissioner is likely to require you to spray your nursery for that pest if it's been found in or near your nursery. And so nurseries in the Bay Area have been ordered by the egg commissioners to spray for a particular caterpillar that is on their nursery stock. And in order for them to arrange for this to be not a problem on the milkweed plants, they would probably have to isolate them, make sure that's okay with the egg commissioner in writing, and so on. I just saw uh, if any of you know Annie's Annuals, absolutely amazing destination retail nursery down in Richmond, they posted a hurrah, we no longer have to spray for LBAM notice. This was just a couple weeks ago. They no longer have to spray with Bacillus thuringiensis because the Ag Commissioner has released them from that responsibility. But uh, the organic option for LBAM, light brown apple moth, is BT, and they were being required to spray it. It's very safe for people. It's very safe for beneficial insects. It only lasts a few days on the plant, but that's long enough to have a residual impact on the caterpillars that we're growing the milkweed for. So we grow our own and we suggest that home gardeners try to grow their own. More to the point, ask your nursery where they get them from. Ask if they've contacted the growers about the pesticide usage. I like it when these kinds of events are publicized or you know, incidents are publicized because the wholesale growers are attentive to this and the retailers will give them feedback that says, we need your milkweed completely unsprayed. We need your milkweed completely untreated for anything, caterpillars or oleander aphid or anything, because most people are growing it in for the purpose of attracting butterflies and hoping that they will oviposit and they'll get monarch caterpillars on there. So this is a big problem. And I'm really glad that it's been brought to our attention. Hopefully, as we get this out there and retailers give the feedback to their growers, it'll get to them. I've got to say, this is a case where your smaller retailer is going to probably have more impact than a bigger one. Because we can say to a little wholesale grower we order from, we just need these pesticide free. If they're going to have pesticides, I really don't want them. They can't do that at the big places. They can't say to these massive growers that, I mean, imagine what it takes to be a supplier for Walmart, which sells <laughs> far more plants than all the rest of us put together. And you're going to go to that grower and say, please don't spray the milkweed in greenhouse 27. No, they can't do that. They just can't. They're, they're at a scale that they can't handle that. So it is a case we're asking locally and getting them to actually contact the grower and find out exactly what the treatment plan has been and be aware that in some cases, treatment plans are out of their control because of this particular pest problem in the Bay Area. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. And I never knew and I think to myself, what a wonderful